Good morning. It is good to be with you uh, as Archie is away. Just a reminder, uh, what a privilege it is when you're the campus minister at Erskine and you preach in a barn every week to get to preach indoors where it's comfortable. So tonight we'll finish RUF for the fall uh, at the barn. And I just checked my phone a few minutes ago. It'll be 47 degrees when I'm preaching this evening. And I see this row of Erskine students, so I just remind you to wear a coat tonight and to bring a friend as we sit tightly together. But we don't have to worry about the temperature in here. Um, We have a few minutes now to consider God's Word. And uh, I'd, I'd like to draw your attention to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. I'm Yes, it is on the wall. In just a moment, I'll read that passage. But before I do, it's Thanksgiving week. Here comes the holiday season. Thanksgiving. What does that even mean? Well, if you're a young school grade age child, it may mean for you that you will take your hand and you will put it on a paper plate. And you will outline your hand and then be given markers and paint and different things. And you remember this drill. You'll, you'll color these fingers to look like feathers. And of course, this would become the turkey's head. And then you would take that home and do what with it? Put it on the refrigerator. It's Thanksgiving season, after all. These are the things that we do. Or maybe if you're a little bit older than a grade school child, it's learning stories of pilgrims having bountiful bountiful meals with American Indians, enjoying corn. Or maybe for college students, who I actually asked this question to in our small group this past Wednesday. These are the things that Thanksgiving means to them, some of them. It's the excitement of going home for a few comfortable, relaxed days with family. It's watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on TV with hot air balloons of Snoopy and Underdog and all the other childhood characters. It's cooking two turkeys, one indoors in the oven the other outdoors in peanut oil, and then arguing over which one is better. It's stories of eating dressing or stuffing, and then arguing over the difference between the two. It's memories of eating pecan pie or pecan pie, and then debating the proper pronunciation of it. It's memories of watching football on TV or playing a backyard game of football with the family. Or maybe it's memories of running a 5K in cooler fall temperatures amidst falling leaves. And of course, for most of us, it probably brings memories of having several generations of family all under one roof together for a few memorable casserole meals that you only eat once, maybe twice a year. And so that's what Thanksgiving is all about. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) 
Thanksgiving truly is something that should be as natural as breathing in the Christian's life. And our culture does not seem to quite have the categories as the church does, as God's people do, for true and genuine thanksgiving. And that's what I'd like to talk about this morning from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. A thanksgiving that is intentional. A thanksgiving that is personal. And a thanksgiving that is worshipful. I think these are three things we'll see in our passage. Listen to God's Word, a familiar passage, and one that draws our attention towards thanksgiving. Now on His way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As He was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met Him. They stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when Jesus saw them, He said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked Him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray that God would help us to understand his word and to apply it. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning? Open our ears, open our hearts of individuals and of whole families to know our need for mercy, to know who we must call upon for mercy, and to know whom we give thanks to for that mercy. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Stir thankfulness in us. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it occurred to me this week as I prepared for this sermon and as I thought about Thanksgiving, it occurred to me for the first time in my life that it seems every holiday of the year you can listen to public radio, secular radio, and you can find music that underscores that holiday and that season on the radio. Of course, there's Christmas music, which has already begun. There's patriotic Fourth of July music. There's even Halloween music. But it occurred to me as I tried to think of songs of thanksgiving not belonging to the church, but belonging to the world. What are those songs? It seems there are no songs. And it seems that our culture, our world, really does not have the category for thanksgiving. And I suppose that only makes sense. It only makes sense. To whom would they give thanks? And why would they give thanks? And so, in a week ahead, I challenge you, listen to the radio. Not the Christian stations. Listen to the world stations. And are there really any songs 
of thanksgiving. And yet our passage makes it very clear that Jesus loves thanksgiving. He loves it when His people give intentional, personal, and worshipful thanksgiving. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. We see that for the Christian, thanksgiving should be as natural as breathing. Now consider the passage in verse 11. The stage and the context of the story that perhaps is already very familiar to you. But I'm going to speak to you that you may have new ears and hear this fresh and new. That's my hope. If you know this story already, or if you've never heard it, let's all hear it as if it's brand new and good news. Jesus is on His way. He's traveling by foot to Jerusalem. And He seems to not be in a hurry. He's meandering almost. And He's on the border between Galilee and Samaria. And what that means is His audience of ministry, the persons to which He will minister, are both Jews and Gentiles. And more specifically, the passage says it will include Samaritans. Now you need to understand that the Samaritans were considered by the Israelites to be a kind of spiritual half-breed. They were seen as imposters in the promised land. And yet the Samaritan will take center stage as they have before in other redemptive stories of Jesus' story. And so as Jesus is entering a town outside of the town, separated from the people, he hears ten loud voices calling out to him. The voice of ten men. That can be pretty loud, right? Ten men yelling together can create a lot of volume. And so the loud voices of ten men cry out, and they cry out the name of Jesus. They somehow know who Jesus is. Perhaps they've been told there's one claiming to be a Messiah, and if He's ever nearby, He's your only hope. He's a healer. He brings deliverance to your problems. And so they recognize Jesus somehow, some way, we're not told. And they then call on Him, the version I read says, for pity. But it also could say for mercy or for compassion. So these ten men, at a distance, outside of the city, calling on the name of Jesus for mercy, for compassion. Now what was their condition? They were lepers, the passage tells us, and they were living together. They had a leprosy. They had a skin disease that demanded by law that they be removed from the people of God. That skin disease was grotesque and it was painful. Our commentaries tell us today that their hair would turn white and fall out and it would reveal open wounds, sores that would not heal and the layers of skin on the body would almost just rot through. It was a miserable condition. And because they were removed from the city, obviously, they were removed from their families, from their friends, and from their loved ones. And the only people they could live with were other people with the same kind of disease. Unclean 
people. And so I want you to sense the misery of these people. This is a sad state of affairs. These people were considered to be untouchable. You couldn't go near them. And as much as their flesh hurt, as grotesque and as miserable as their condition was, I suppose everyone longed for that embrace from their family members that they couldn't even get close to. That's a miserable condition. To be in such a state of affairs and to have everyone you love and care for at more than an arm's distance. Talk about loneliness. Talk about depression. Talk about misery. This is a picture of it. But then in verse 14, the story changes. The trajectory of the story changes from something sad to something joyful. And here's where the ten lepers are cleansed by Jesus. Listen again to verse 14. When Jesus saw them, He said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. Now, you need to understand that these priests had the function of protecting the worship of God. They were to maintain the purity and the cleanliness of worship. And so they functioned as a kind of public health inspector when it came to these kinds of skin diseases. And they had the power and the authority to determine when you were diseased and when you were not. And when Jesus pronounces to these ten lepers, go, show yourself to the priests, that is what they had hoped to hear. Jesus is essentially saying, pack your bags, you're going home. Now go see the one who can give you permission to re-enter into the community. And this is great news. Obviously, this is the news that they could dream of, that they would hope for. That finally they could return to their families, their friends, to the worship of God, to their communities. Finally, everything in this curse seems to be reversed. As I think about that, I can only imagine what it would be like. And we get to see it on TV sometimes now. When a soldier comes home from war and they surprise their family. And they are so overjoyed to be with their family, family again. Having been at a distance, having been separated, having gone without hugs, without kisses, without words of affirmation, they're sent home. And they can't get home quickly enough. And that's exactly what I think happens here with the 10. They can't get home quickly enough. Finally, they can be embraced again. Finally, they can be reinstated into their community. Except for one. Except for one of the 10. And that in verses 15 and 16. Listen again to what happens here. One of them, one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, the passage says. Apparently, this one of the ten had gone with the crowd, sharing the excitement, sharing the glee, going to the priest, being cleansed. 
but then immediately says, you know what? There's something I must do before I rush back in to the life that I once had. While I still know where he is, I've got to go back and thank the one who made this true. And it's remarkable. I mean, who of us would not just go home? Even if we didn't have family members, just to be home and in familiarity and comfort with food and water, even that alone, if he didn't have any family, would be such a draw. But he says, no, 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 no. All that can wait. I have got to go back while I know where he is and thank the one who made this true for me. Three things about his thanksgiving that I think we should consider very briefly. First, his voice, then his posture, and then his practice. This man driven to thanksgiving praised God with a loud voice. He was loud about it. Just as loud as they had called out to Jesus for mercy, he brings that same loud voice in thanksgiving. That's what the passage says. And he had a posture in his thanksgiving. The passage says he threw, his, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. He lowered himself in the presence of the one who treated him with mercy. And the third thing is his practice of thanksgiving. It, it was clearly intentional and it was personal. It was intentional, personal, and it was worship. The one leper said, any hugs, any kisses, any affirmation I can get, it could wait. It could wait. I've got to go thank this man. And the passage, of course, says, and he was a Samaritan. He was doubly cursed. He was doubly unclean. He was doubly despised, doubly rejected. But in the hands of the one who would show him mercy, he was fully ransomed. He was fully healed. He was fully restored. He was fully forgiven. The world called him doubly cursed. Jesus called him doubly blessed. That's the kind of mercy, that's the kind of grace that God shows to sinners. And then at the close of the passage, verses 17 through 19, Jesus asks what I'll call a haunting question. Listen again to what he says. Jesus says, after the one came and thanked him, he says, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has only the foreigner returned to give thanks to God? We're not ten cleansed. Where, where are the other nine? Jesus is kind of computing. Something doesn't add up here. One of my professors in seminary, Gerard Van Groningen, in teaching this passage to us in a way that I still remember, he commented on those words of Jesus and said, one can almost hear a tone of hurt in the question of Jesus. He had shown mercy to ten. And one came back. One acknowledged the giver of the gift in such a way as to say, do we only love God for His gifts and not for who He is? 
Do we only love God because of what He does for us and not because of who He is? Now this morning I had an experience that seems to parallel this in my little head. And I bet you've had experiences like this also. So this morning I went outside and there was the squeaky cat. The white cat with the black tail that we call dipstick. (laughs) We have two cats, one outdoor cat named dipstick, another indoor cat, um, which is another illustration for another day. But Dipstick has the squeakiest meow that after just a few times, as she squeaks for food, that's what she's doing. She sees you and she's like, I'm hungry. It's time to feed me. And because she squeaks so much, I will feed her. And so I go over to the wooden bin in which her food is kept. I lift up the wooden bin and just the sound of scooping the cat food and the sound of it falling in the plastic bowl. And then the dropping of the wooden bin. The combination of those sounds together always does the same thing. Now we only have one outdoor cat. But four cats come to eat. Because the combination of those sounds apparently communicates to all the neighbor's cats that the gift giver is here. There's a free lunch at the Patrick's, a free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, apparently. And so somehow we become the the feeder of all the community of cats that live around us. And I've noticed that as you're putting the food in the bowl, they might brush up against your ankle a little bit, kind of acknowledge you with a, hey, thanks. And then they'll eat, and as soon as they eat, they all go home. They scurry away in such a hurry to get back to where they belong. And if you ever see them during the week when they're not hungry, they won't let you near them. They'll treat you as if you had abused them. They show no love, no thankfulness, no appreciation whatsoever. And such is the nature of a cat. Amen? So as that happened this morning, as it does every day, with this passage in my mind, I thought, you know what? As much as I don't like those wretched little creatures, those precious little creatures, (laughs) as much as I can see the thanklessness in them, that they they love me for the food, and they scurry away as soon as their belly is full, never to return until they're hungry again. And I thought, you know... How true of, of me is that very thing? That when crisis comes, when calamity comes, Lord, we need you. Be near to us. But when the belly's full and things are well, does the Bible not say that God's people have little interest in Him? And I think that's true. I think that's true of Paul Patrick. I think that's probably true of you. And what's remarkable in our passage this morning is that God has apparently worked in the heart of a man to stir a thankfulness out of his misery, out of his skin condition. He made him thankful for deliverance. And so this morning, in the way of application, 
and in preparation for a week of thanksgiving that our culture does not have a category for? What if each of us thought, you know what? We may not have a skin condition that drives us to the living God, but the scriptures do say we have a sin condition. We have a heart condition. When we've seen the wretchedness of it, when we've seen the misery of our own hearts, the sinfulness of our own hearts, it is to draw us heavenward with thanksgiving that He would be merciful to a people like us, to cats like us that only show up when we're hungry and offer no thanksgiving in between. God has said we should have, we should have a loud thanksgiving to Him. He loves it. We should have a, a posture of humility in our thanksgiving. And it should be a priority for us. Everything else can wait. But I need to be intentional. I need to be personal. I need to be worshipful. When nobody else is looking. Especially when nobody else is looking. At the very close of the passage, Jesus dismisses this man to go back to his community and to those families and friends with these words. He says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And so my question, my ultimate question of application for all of us this morning is, have you ever known Jesus to speak into your life in such a way as to say, rise and go? Your faith has made you well. You are a new creature. You are no longer the same. I've shown you mercy and you are forever redefined. You know, if your heart isn't driven to any degree of thanksgiving intentionally or personally or in terms of worship, could it be that you've not known Jesus to say to you, rise and go, your faith has made you well? Could it be that you've not exercised faith in the living God? That you've not seen Jesus as the one who offers you mercy? It sure seems that nine had received some mercy, but one had experienced mercy in such a way as to drive them to thanksgiving. In the 1800s, which was a rich season for hymn writing, Henry Francis Light wrote a hymn that as we hear the lyrics of it and as we sing the lyrics of it this morning, I don't think it's wrong to say Consider how this one leper himself could have penned these very words in praise to God. In just a moment, we're going to sing these words. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet, the posture of humility, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Who like me his praise to sing? Which is to say, who better than me to sing his praise? Who else like me has reason to praise God? Lift up your voices loudly, it seems to say. And then in the second stanza, it says, praise him for his grace and his favor to our fathers in distress. Praise him still the same forever. Slow to chide, and quick to bless. Henry Light captures beautifully in a way that I think the one leper would. 
to know that God is worthy of our worship. He's ransomed us. He's healed us. He's restored us. He's forgiven us. And it's Thanksgiving week. And that really means something for the Christian. Not only do we have a lot of things to be thankful for, we have one to whom we can give thanks. The world knows Him not, but if you know Him, praise Him loudly. Sing loudly and honor Him who has shown you mercy so richly. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the mercy and the kindness, the grace, the goodness that You show sinners. Lord, would You open our eyes to see what You have done for us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you now open our voices to lift them up loudly in praise of the one who has shown us this rich mercy. We ask this and we pray for it to continue in our week. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.